Welcome to another quarantine episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Let's start tonight with, with some new research which suggests that the human thumb, one of the things that really makes humans, well, human, developed around 2 million years ago. The development of the thumb allows for precision grasping, which is believed to have been a precursor for the ability to create stone tools and thus opened up a vast new set of options, including in available food consumption. Katerina Harvati, the lead author of the new study published in Current Biology, and a paleoanthropologist at the University of Tübingen explains that most previous studies on the thumb compared early hominin thumbs with the modern thumbs. Harvati and her team looked at each thumb independently. The, the-, the team assessed the anatomical quote-unquote thumb opposition or the ability to bring the thumb in contact with the fingers, which is greatly enhanced in humans compared to other primates like chimpanzees and is a central component of human-like manual dexterity. Harvati and her colleagues wanted to know if this thumb opposition could be detected in early hominin species, and if so, which species. We know that the earliest stone tools are found more than 3 million years ago, so if thumb opposition was required for creating tools, it would have had to have developed at around the same time. This would suggest that the thumb would have developed in Australopithecus. The team looked at fossils of modern humans, chimpanzees, and a number of other hominins, including Homer neanderthalus, Homo naledi, three species of Australopithecus, and two specimens found at the Swartkrans site in South Africa, which have not yet been classified. They looked at two aspects, bone anatomy and inferred soft tissue. As muscles themselves are not preserved in fossils, we inferred their presence and location in the hand skeleton based on their distinctive areas of attachment on the bone surface, wrote Harvati. It is worth noting that our study focused on a muscle, opponens pollicis, whose general location, function, and muscle attachment sites are equivalent among great apes, providing a proper comparative basis for our sample. Now, the researchers created virtual models of the hominin hands, and in order to calculate the manual dexterity, in order to calculate the manual dexterity each species would be capable of. Our methodology integrates cutting-edge virtual muscle modeling with three-dimensional analysis of bone shape and size. First author, Alexandros Karakotstis, a paleoanthropologist at the University of Tübingen, said in a statement, 
they found that all Pleistocene species had the increased thumb opposition efficiency, including Homo naledi, a small-brained human who had not yet been associated with small to with stone tools, as well as the two million year old bones found at the Swartkrans cave site in South Africa, which helps establish a time frame for the emergence of this particular trait. The authors bolster this hypothesis by pointing to an increased use of tools in Africa and the beginning of cultural complexity at this same time. Our study indicates that this human ability, the increased thumb opposition efficiency or thumb dexterity, already evolved at the dawn of the Homo lineage and was perhaps a crucial founding block of the subsequent very important biocultural developments that took place after two million years ago, explained Harvati. These include more systematic use of stone tools, the development of more complex stone tool industries, the gradual increased exploitation of animal resources, and of course the appearance of Homo erectus, a large-brained and larger-bodied hominin whose geographic range included both Africa and Eurasia. Now, on the other hand, Australopithecus was found to have a thumb more similar to that of chimpanzees rather than humans. This is despite the fact that Australopithecus sabida, or sediba, excuse me, had been described as especially human-like, prompting suggestions that it was associated with tool-related behaviors, according to Harvati. Now, not everyone is convinced, as we often find. The researchers relied heavily on a single muscle attachment, an emphasis, which is con which is controversial as the idea that you can actually tell what the muscle would have looked like from their from their looked like and their functioning from the muscle attachment is disputed. Erin Marie Williams Hatala, an associate professor of biology at Chatham University, who wasn't involved with the new research, noted that we simply do not understand the relationship between the morphology of muscle attachment sites and the morphology and certainly not the functional ability of the associated muscle to confidently say anything about the latter based on the former. Now, Harvati admits that there is a serious limitation to the study because it is focused on a single muscle of the thumb. However, she notes that this was necessary due to the fragmentary nat nature of the fossil record. And because her team wanted to include as many specimens from as many fossil hominin species as possible. Moving forward, the team wants to examine other important fingers and muscles involved in tool use and to examine other early hominins to learn more about early behavior and possible tool uses, and to also look at the Neanderthal hand, which was slightly different from that of modern humans. And speaking of Neanderthals, let's talk about a new analysis of teeth from two individuals found on the Isle of Jersey in the UK over a hundred years ago. A new paper in the Journal of Human Evolution describes two teeth found at the Le Cap de Saint-Prevalade cave site in Jersey 
back in 1910 and 1911. The teeth belonged to two different individuals and show signs of interbreeding, which, su which suggest that popu the population was hybridized. This cave site was occupied for more than 200,000 years, and excavations at the beginning of the last century found over 20,000 stone tools, as well as bones from mammoths and woolly rhinos. Now, this was during the last ice age, where much of the English Channel was either dry land or shallow water and allowed migration to the Channel Islands from France. In all, 13 teeth were found in a single location on a ledge behind a hearth. They were initially assumed to be from a single lone Neanderthal individual. The teeth were borrowed by Chris Stringer, a co-author of the new study and an archaeologist at the National History Museum in London, and his colleagues from the, from the Jersey Museum and Art Gallery. Now, it's fairly settled science at this point that Neanderthals interbred with human populations, and as of now, those descended from populations which left Africa in the recent epoch have around 2% Neanderthal DNA in their genomes. However, we still don't know the exact circumstances, nor how much this was a blending absorption of the Neanderthals into expanding modern human populations, noted Stringer. Now, the teeth help bolster the idea that rather than going extinct, Neanderthals were absorbed into the human population and eventually were overtaken rather than simply wiped out. Of the 13 teeth, one has disappeared and another was found to be that of another animal. The 11 available teeth were found to show signs of hybridization. We find the same unusual combinations of Neanderthal and modern human traits in the teeth of both identified Neanderthal individuals, said Stringer. We consider this the strongest direct evidence yet found in fossils, although we don't yet have DNA evidence to back this up. In summary, the tooth roots look very Neanderthal, whereas the neck and crowns of the teeth look much more like those of modern humans. Though which generation was the initial hybridization event is not known, the researchers suggest that it may have happened within the prior few generations. The DNA will, of course, be the cincher, but the team, as noted, has not yet been able to do this analysis. The only other explanation I can think of for this combination of traits of the two species is that this is a population that evolved the highly unusual combination of traits in isolation, he said. However, at this time, because of the lower sea levels of the last ice age, Jersey was definitely connected to neighboring France, so that, so that level of long-term isolation is unlikely. Now, the site has been dated to around 48,000 years old, based on recent sediment dating. This is around 8,000 years before Neanderthals ceased to be found in the fossil record as distinct individuals. Of course, there might be many different scenarios across the Neanderthal world which led to their disappearance, from local extinction to absorption into expanding populations of Homo sapiens, Matthew Pope, a co-author of the study and an archaeologist at the UCL Institute of Archaeology explained. 
Here at Lacotte, we might get a chance to look at one scenario up close. Though further detailed excavations through further detailed excavations and scientific analysis. He even suggested that because the teeth are broadly Neanderthal, it may have actually been humans who were being absorbed in this particular case. Okay, let's move forward in time now to talk about a new discovery from ancient Egypt. A new paper by Karen Sawada, an archaeologist from Makari University, describes the first instance of a mud carapace found on an Egyptian mummy. This particular mummy is held in the collection of the Chow Chak Wing Museum at the University of Sydney in Australia. Now, carapaces have been found before on Egyptian mummies, but those have been found to be composed of either resins or a mixture of resins and other substances such as bitumen, which is a kind of a natural tar. Our multidisciplinary study thus provides new insights into this type of mummification procedure and expands our understanding of the way ancient Egyptians treated their dead, said Sawada. Due to mud being a more affordable and readily available alternative to resin, it is suggested that this mummification technique is likely to, likely to have been more common than previously thought. Further investigation of other non-royal mummified individuals will reveal the extent to which this technique was practiced. And so this mummy is actually pretty interesting. Uh, the coffin has inscriptions and symbols which suggest that the occupant was named Marua and was buried around 1000 BCE. However, it turns out that the body in the coffin does not actually belong to the coffin. So we don't actually know who this individual actually was. Now, originally donated to the University of Sydney in the mid-1850s by Australian politician and philanthropist Charles Nicholson, in 1999, the mummy was first CAT-scanned and the carapace detected. A re-examination of the mummy initiated in 2017 as part of the preparations of the opening of the museum led to new CAT scans of the body and a new analysis of samples from the mummy. Allowing for a more detailed understanding of the carapace layer, said Sawada. Now, not only does the body not belong to the coffin, it's actually older than the coffin being radiocarbon dated to between 1200 to 1113 BCE. What most likely happened is that in the 19th century, a merchant put the two parts together to make a supposed complete set that he could then sell off to Nicholson. And of course, we all know what happened with Egyptian mummies in the 19th century. Um, it's, uh, yeah, the 19th century was a wild time for mummies. Um, and so they were being sold to people who took them back to Europe and would have mummy unwrapping parties. 
um, a lot of the animal carcasses that were mummified, um, tons of those were actually ground up and used as fertilizer in British fields. Um, all sorts of crazy things happened. People would take ground up mummy uh, medicine. Uh, it was definitely a different time than today where people painstakingly are trying to uh, preserve and protect these important uh, cultural artifacts. Um, I mean, obviously, we I'm sure you're well aware that the 19th century and archaeology uh, are not exactly the same thing that they were to, that they are today. They are much more like Indiana Jones uh, than today's archaeologists are, who are much more um, exacting and a lot more um, skilled. But of course, you know, that skill developed over time. Um, and a lot of people were good archaeologists, but there were also a lot of people who just basically wanted to take all the shiny things and didn't really care about anything else. Anyways, getting back to this. What most likely happened was that, again, this coffin, which is almost certainly, sorry, so the mummy is almost certainly not Meruel. The Chantress of Amun, uh, which is actually obviously a bit disappointing because I want to know more about the Chantress of Amun. That sounds like fun. Uh, however, the mummy does belong to a woman who died between the ages of 26 and 35. Now, a new analysis showed that the carapace is a hardened shell wrapped around the body and packed within the linen wrappings. Now, unfortunately, we do know little about the woman because she clearly is not Maruo, but we do kind of think that she would have been from a middle-class family. Given the overall quality of her mummification and the added expense of the carapace to restore the body at some point, at some later point, we can say that she was likely a person from a family of means, explained Sawada. However, the use of mud to make a carapace rather than finely exported resin, as can be seen with some mummified royal individuals of the period, suggests a more economic approach to by those who carried out her post-mortem treatment. And so the scans found that the body was most likely damaged shortly after the initial mummification process, requiring the carapace to repair the damage. The circumstances of, the, of this damage are unknown, said Sawada, who explained that this mud shell, together with some rewrapping and packing of the body with linen, would have served to reform and protect the damaged body. And of course, this would have been important because the Egyptians believed that your body needed to be properly preserved in order for your ka to enjoy a good afterlife. Now, Sawada also noted that mud itself was associated with the idea of regeneration and growth. And so it would have been a symbolically significant material to use for this repair, as well as inexpensive. So that is pretty exciting to find this new um, 
form of carapace for a mummy. And I think it'll be really interesting to see if they then go back and look at other mummies and find more evidence for this kind of uh, economical wrapping. And so obviously people from all walks of life wanted to be mummified, but the more uh, money you had, the better sort of mummification that you could get. And so it is a really interesting um, topic. Obviously, people all over the world have um, engaged in this kind of ritual preparation of the dead in order to try and preserve the body as best they can. Um, and so it's always really interesting to learn more. And it's really cool because there's a lot of new um, discoveries being made in Egypt right now. And so um, there's a big excavation at Saqqara. And so there's a lot of um, mummies and uh, coffins that have been discovered uh, and that will need to be examined. And so, of course, we won't know really about the details of those for some time because, you know, often these studies are done a couple of years ago and it takes that long to really work through all of the evidence and to present the final um, analysis. But it's really cool even just to be able to look at the pictures, obviously, because um, the Egyptians were so meticulous and created such beautiful objects. Um, and so, yeah, it's going to be really interesting in the coming years to learn more from these discoveries. Okay, so let's actually move on and shift slightly to the north to Turkey. And so excavations at an 11,000-seat Roman-era theater in ancient Myra, which is now Demre, here researchers have uncovered an earlier Hellenistic structure, which featured a trove of terracotta figurines. The figurines include depictions of gods, goddesses, men, women, cavalry, and animals. Some of the figurines have inscriptions and the remains of paint. I should say and or the remains of paint. This collection of figurines gives us a rich clue about what existed in the mysterious Myra under a thick silt layer in the 1st and 2nd centuries BC, said Nevzat Chevik, a professor of archaeologists at Akdeniz University in Turkey, who led the excavation. Now, Myra was an important ancient settlement in Lycia, which was an important ancient maritime region of the Mediterranean. The port is known for being one of the largest harbors in the ancient Mediterranean, famous for its rock-cut tombs, for the Church of St. Nicholas, obviously of Santa Claus fame, uh, who was the bishop of the city in the 4th century, and that aforementioned Roman-era theater. Excavating from June to October 2020, they uncovered the second smaller theater dating again to the Hellenistic era, which the researchers 
knew was going to be there, uh, but the discovery of the terracotta figures was a complete surprise. It is as if the people of ancient Myra were resurrected and ran through the time tunnel altogether and came to our day. Chevik remembers telling his team when they found the figurines, which date to between 21 and 2200 years old, including figures such as Artemis, Heracles, Aphrodite, and Apollo, as well as a woman with a child, a boy with a fruit, a horseman, and a woman carrying hydria, which would have been Greek water vessels. Because of the nature of the cache, as well as votive plates and incense containers found nearby, it suggests that the collection was originally from a cult area and was thrown here at a later date. Red, blue, and pink hues were used, intensely in different shades on the clothing of the figures, with inscriptions on the back of some figures suggesting a master or workshop. In addition to the whole figurines, an additional cache of more than 50 disembodied heads was found, suggesting their bodies may still be waiting to be discovered in the area. In addition, they also uncovered ceramic, bronze, lead, and silver objects in the area. And so the team plans to return to excavating soon. For now, they are working to preserve, repair, and assemble the terracotta collection, which has obviously been fragmented over time. And so that is very exciting. Um, they're basically around, I would say, the size of um, modern chess pieces, maybe a little bit bigger. So they're definitely small figurines. Um, they probably would have been on an altar. Um, a lot of um, figurines of gods would have been placed on altars um, in Rome. Pretty much everyone would have their own house altar where they would have various figurines and votive offerings, um, votive plates for offerings and things like that. And so um, they definitely look like figures that have been found in other places that match that kind of um, pattern. But to find such a large collection of them in one place is actually pretty exciting. And they're very cool. I will definitely, um, I will try to remember to link to a picture um, compilation of them. But um, yeah, so we are going to take a break. It is that time to do some, um, some show promos and some PSAs. And when we come back, we will uh, once again talk about the origin of dogs. Uh, we've been doing a lot of that lately, but dogs are awesome. So why not? Um, so please do stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. -S -S -S. 
Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in the CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's Subculture Music Program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXLJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton, so come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back. And once again, you are listening to Evidence-Based Radio, and we are going to talk about dogs. Specifically, about dogs' arrival in the Americas. So, Angela Perry, an archaeologist at Durham University, and colleagues have looked at the genomes of ancient and modern dogs and compared them to ancient and modern human genomes and found interesting correlations. The results suggest that people in northern Siberia domesticated the first dogs sometime before 23,000 years ago. Perry and her colleagues, as well as other recent genetic studies, have found that if you look at the data, dog and human groups tend to split or merge in roughly the same times and places, which can help to create a genetic map of the two species' mutual journey. One of those splits happened around 16,000 years ago, suggesting that the first people to populate the Americas brought dogs with them. 
Now, a major split happened between 16,000 and 15,000 years ago, when archaeological evidence shows that people were moving south along the Pacific coast as they skirted the edges of the ice sheets that still covered most of the North American continent. And at the same moment, a new branch of dogs split off from the Arctic dog population, which includes modern Siberian Huskies. This branch is called haplogroup A2b, which makes up the matrilineal lineage of all indigenous North American dogs. And so mitochondrial DNA, which is passed down from the mother, uh, from ancient and modern dogs, suggests that these dogs split off from a common ancestor with Siberian Huskies around 16,400 years ago, just in time to walk alongside the first people crossing the Bering Land Bridge into North America. The time frame is remarkably consistent with that of the first peopling of the Americas, wrote Perry and her colleagues. Now, unfortunately, as I may have talked about before, most of those original dogs were wiped out by the same forces that decimated the native populations. There are some dogs that have small amounts of those lineages, such as the Carolina dog or some chihuahuas, but most dogs in the Americas today are genetically, all genetically look like European breeds, co-author Kelsey Witt Dillon, a molecular biologist at Brown University, wrote. Similar to how many Native Americans were killed by Europeans through warfare and disease, their dogs were likely also targeted by European colonizers and died from diseases from European dogs, she said. And when Europeans brought their dogs with them in large numbers, European breeds eventually replaced a lot of the genetic lineages we see in these ancient dogs. Now, despite that, they almost certainly helped those first settlers to make their way in the new lands. Dogs were part of a larger cultural repertoire that may have assisted humans in rapidly dispersing into and throughout the Northern Hemisphere, wrote Perry. Now, dogs would have helped out with hunting, tracking, tracking and protecting uh, the, the travelers. However, before moving down the coast, humans and their dogs lived in Ice Age Siberia and were largely isolated, with several distinct groups of people living in the area. Now, the groups, as time went on, became increasingly isolated from each other, and by a few thousand years before some of them set off for Beringia, they were no longer interbreeding. This period is called the Beringian Standstill, and lasted somewhere between 2,400 and 9,000 years ago. Those people almost certainly had dogs with them as they tried to survive in this harsh land. Prior to becoming isolated, the ancestors of indigenous North Americans interbred with the ancient Northern Siberians. The two groups branched off around 24,000 years ago, but until the standstill continued to interbreed on occasion. Meanwhile, ancient dogs from the haplogroup A2, which includes the American haplogroup as well as Siberian Huskies, split off 
from the larger dog family tree around 22,800 years ago, right around the time of this Ice Age isolation, which all suggests that these dogs were domesticated in Siberia sometime between 23,000 years ago, and when people moved into North America, again, they took those dogs with them. Regarding next steps, right now we're hoping to sequence additional dog genomes, especially those from Siberia and near Beringia, to try to narrow the timing of dog domestication and clarify when dogs came to the Americas, Whit Dillon noted. Now again, this suggests that North American Siberians were the first to domesticate those wolves into dogs, and at around the time people were moving towards the Americas, people from Western Eurasia were also occasionally interbreeding with the Siberians, which might explain how dogs also reached Central Europe around the same time as they reached North America. And so, as we talked about recently, evidence suggests that an abundance of game in small pockets of less harsh weather may have been the catalyst for wolves being able to be domesticated into dogs. Because if there wasn't enough game, then dogs are actually in direct competition with humans and would not necessarily have been thought of as an animal that you would want to bring into your fold and to domesticate. Um, and so, in fact, people in Siberia at the time would have been living in small, isolated patches of lands that researchers called refugia, places where the terrain and local climate was a little less harsh and where edible plants would have lured game species, which both those humans and wolves would have relied on. Climactic conditions may have brought human and wolf populations into close proximity with refugial areas, within refugial areas, given their attraction to the same prey species, wrote the um, researchers. As wolves began to scavenge the leftovers of prey felled by humans, the friendly, friendliest ones would have probably eventually been brought in to actually be part of the group. And so sometime, again, before 23,000 years ago, dogs, rather than wolves, were those sharing our spaces. So that's very cool. Um, any good, any story about good dogs is a good, is a good story. <laughs> okay, so now we are going to move on and talk about conspiracies. We're going to start off by talking about a well-known conspiracy theory laced with tragedy that may finally have a reasonable science-based explanation. In January 1959, nine hikers, seven men and two women, headed through Russia's Ural Mountains toward a local peak known colloquially as Dead Mountain. The hikers pitched their tent at the base of a small slope in the area as a blizzard turned the area into a harsh minus 19 degree, frankly, most likely hellscape. Unfortunately, those hikers would never leave this area. The first issue was that it took nearly a month in order for researchers to find the nine bodies, 
which they found scattered in the snow, trees, and ravines of the area. Some of the hikers were half-dressed in just their socks and long underwear. Some had broken bones and cracked skulls, while some had lost soft facial features. The tent had, had apparently been slashed from the inside, and it featured the campers' neatly folded clothing and half-eaten food. Now, the official cause of death was hypothermia, and the area is now called the Datlov Pass after one of the victims, Igor Datlov. The conspiracies began to fly after the case was brought to prominence in the 1990s, and theories of why the hikers left their tent started to pile up, from aliens to Yeti to pretty much anything else you can think of, um, including uh, secret Soviet uh, weapons testing of some sort. Now, details began to be added, such as that the hikers were radioactive or that their skin had been bright orange when they were found and all sorts of other embellishments. Well, now a study published in the Nature Journal, Communications, Earth and Environment, takes the first path at trying to really solve the mystery scientifically. The researchers suggest that a small avalanche triggered by an odd set of conditions would have pummeled with the hikers as they slept and then forced them out into the cold night without being able to stop to get dressed. We do not claim to have solved the Dyatlov past mystery, as no one survived to tell the story, lead study author Johan Guillaume said of head of the Snow and Avalanche Simulation Laboratory at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Lausanne, uh, Switzerland told for Live Science, but we show the plausibility of the avalanche hypothesis for the first time. Now, actually, this isn't the first time that the avalanche suggestion has been made. Two previous federal Russian investigations concluded that a slab avalanche, where a slab of surface snow breaks away from a deeper lever layer of snow and slides downhill in blocky chunks was to blame. However, these reports did not explain some of the weirder aspects of the incident. The slab avalanche theory was criticized due to four main counterarguments, Guillaume said. The most important problem was that when the searchers found the bodies 26 days later, there was no sign of an avalanche. Second, the slope of the hill they camped under was less than 30 degrees, which is considered the minimum for a slab avalanche. Third, the hikers fled the tent in the middle of the night, hours after having set up their camp by digging into the face of the slope to create a flat surface below the tent to create a sheer wall of snow next to it, a common practice at the time. And finally, some of the hikers sustained head and chest injuries, which aren't usually associated with avalanches. And so in the new paper, Guillaume and study co-author Alexander Puzrin a researcher at the Institute for Geotechnical Engineering in Zurich, addressed each of these objections. 
they studied records from the time that recreated the environmental conditions most likely present on the fateful night. They then used a digital avalanche model to test whether a slab avalanche could have plausibly occurred under these conditions. They lay out a hypothesis that answers pretty much all of the objections. First, they learned that the angle of the slope was actually steeper than previously thought, at 28 degrees rather than 23 degrees, as originally believed. Subsequent snowfalls may have obscured this fact and smoothed out signs of the avalanche, which is a big reason why, um, you know, when the other um, hikers got there, there was no signs of an avalanche. But again, it was 28 days later, and so a lot of snow movement had probably happened by then. As for the need for a steep slope, while 30 degrees is considered standard, it's not a hard and fast rule, with evidence that a slope with an angle as small as 15 degrees may trigger an avalanche. The important component is the friction value between the upper slab layer that falls and the base layer. The base layer in the pass at that time was depth hoar, or sugar snow, which is a type of grainy, crystallized ice, which increases the risk of avalanches. So basically, the underlayer was uh, not the kind of pack snow that would hold together, but it was grainy, which of course makes things much more likely to slide. Third, the snow may not have been high enough to slide when they went to bed, but as the wind continued to blow, because remember they were in the middle of a blizzard, it may have continued to pile up, and then at some point it reached that crucial fail point. And finally, because the hikers were lying flat on the ground rather than upright, as in many avalanches, the snow might have hit them with sufficient force to cause the injuries that were um, reported. Dynamic avalanche simulations suggest that even a relatively small slab of snow could have led to severe but non-lethal thorax and skull injuries, as reported, as reported by the post-mortem examination, the researchers wrote. And so, it suggests that the hikers went to bed, hale and healthy, and had to cut their way out of the tent, dragging their wounded comrades to what they hoped would be safety, but unfortunately, the conditions were just really counter to humans being able to survive. Now, it doesn't explain every tiny detail, but it all absolutely suggests that the main force was an avalanche. And it also reminds us that tragedies like this are human-centered, not centered on aliens or yetis or any other kind of fantasy cause. When the hikers decided to go to the forest, they took care of their injured friends. No one was left behind, Guillaume said. I think it is a story of, of courage and friendship in the face of a brutal force of nature. And I think it's a really interesting and important 
um, example of the kind of story that a lot of conspiracies turn into. And so this is very similar. Uh, this story has a very similar trajectory to that of the Roswell conspiracy. And so it's, again, something that when it happened at the time, it wasn't really a huge, um, there was no conspiracy that built up at the very beginning. It was only many, many years later when it was rediscovered and as elements were added and were embellished and people's memories were, you know, recalled facts that hadn't actually happened, it was only at that point that the story really took off and became important in a sort of conspiracy nature. And so things like, you know, that the bodies were radioactive and that certain body parts had been removed, um, those are very much in keeping with, say, either an alien invasion or a uh, secret testing of weaponry, which, of course, since this was Soviet Russia, people were pretty uh, willing to accept could have been the reason for it. And so this is, like I said, what happened with Roswell. At the time, Roswell kind of came and went and just faded into obscurity until years later, Stanton Friedman uh, found the story and brought it to prominence. And so again, there, it was a case of bringing in new information that wasn't necessarily true information. And so when people, this all goes into people's memories. So we know that memories are very malleable. We know that you can't simply uh, believe that your recollection of something that happened many years ago is the truth of what happened. And it's not because you're lying or doing anything specifically on purpose. It's simply the nature of memory. And so memory changes every time you think about something that's happened in the past, your memories will be shaped by that recollection. And so this is how a lot of these sorts of conspiracy theories work. Now, one of the interesting things that I wanted to look at in view of recent uh, developments is whether or not conspiracies are suddenly on the uptick. And so it turns out that while there isn't necessarily a longitudinal study specifically on conspiracy theories in America over more than the last 20 years or so, a study by political scientists Joseph E. Uzinski and Joseph M. Parent reviewed over 120 years of letters to the editors from 1890 to 2010 for both the New York Times and the Chicago Tribune and found that in over 100,000 letters, there was little change in the volume of conspiracy theories and that it actually declined somewhat from the 1800s 
to the 1960s, where it leveled out. They also found that in 2004, the Boston Globe decried a golden age of conspiracy theory. In 1994, it was the Washington Post. And in 1964, it was the New York Times, and so on. And so we have to remember that things are not uniquely bad right now. We have a tendency to believe that things have never been worse or that things are really getting even more out of hand than they've ever been before. And it's just not true. Um, So we are safer than we've ever been, despite the fact that people, if you ask them when you do polling, people will absolutely not believe that. They think we must be not nearly as safe as we used to be. Um, And also you will find that we just have a greater volume of um, data at our hands these days. And part of the thing about conspiracies is that humans are pattern-seeking animals. And so when we have all of this information at our fingertips, we're able to find more things that maybe look fishy to us and can lead to conspiratorial thinking. But again, the research shows that it hasn't actually gotten all that worse. It just might seem that worse because we're seeing, we're being exposed to other people's conspiracies now. We don't necessarily necessarily believe them, so the level of conspiracy is the same. But we now know about all of these people who have these weird conspiracies. And so much like with violent crime, we think that there are more conspiracy theories circulating now than there ever have been because we're exposed to them more. And so I thought that was a really interesting finding because I certainly would have thought uh, from a naive point of view that we certainly do have more conspiracies right now. Um, Just the volume of them just seems incredible. Um, But it's nice to know that you can always uh, go back and look at the evidence and see that in point of fact, no, it is not more prevalent. It is pretty much the same that it has been since the 60s. I mean, think about all the conspiracies that happened in the 60s um, or conspiracy theories that come out of the 60s, I should say. Um, and so it's, that was really fascinating to find out. And, um, I think though that it does, uh, not diminish our, uh, sort of, um, calling to try and mitigate people's belief in conspiracies as much as we can. Um, you know, it's fun to think about, uh, you know, certain alien conspiracies because it's interesting and it would be, you know, um, it's sort of titillating to think about these sorts of things. But as pointed out in this uh, previous story, you know, this is a tragedy about humans and turning it into this, you know, elaborate conspiracy about Yeti or aliens or, you know, secret testing really pulls away from the fact that these are real people who had a real tragedy that is being exploited by all of these conspiracy theories. And I think that's something we have to be really careful about is to not 
uh, dehumanize people who are involved in these sorts of conspiracies and to really look to see, is there something here or do I just want there to be something here? And so, yeah, just food for thought uh, for no reason at all. I can't imagine why I want to talk about conspiracies as of late. <clears throat> um, though I will say uh, very quickly that I am uh, torn about the events that happened in the house the other day. Um, I have always kind of felt that I am a free speech absolutist, um, but I think that uh, it's interesting to sort of see the arguments for while one can believe in free speech, one can also believe that, you know, certain bodies should have certain uh, rules and regulations. And um, it's a really interesting uh, moral dilemma to think about. And um, obviously, this is not that show. Uh, so we won't get into that too much. But just remember, if you see a conspiracy, think about the easy explanation. Occam's razor is always a good rule of thumb. The most simple explanation is almost certainly the real explanation. Okay, uh, that's all the time we have for tonight. Thank you for sticking with me, and you have been listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.